Chapter Fifteen of Grace Harlowe's Fourth Year at Overton College by Jessie Graham Flower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen: A Firelight Council. It was well after midnight when the theatre party returned to Mabel's home, rather sleepy but delighted with their glimpse of pleasure-loving New York by night. After the theatre, they were invited to be Mr. Ashe's guests at supper and were promptly whisked away in their motor-car to one of New York's particularly exclusive hotels, where a delicious little supper was served to them in one of the hotel's private dining-rooms. Half-past eight o'clock, Thanksgiving morning, found the six girls downstairs and seated at the breakfast-table. Mr. Ashe, who made it an ironclad rule always to be in his office at half-past eight, even on holidays, had time for only a hasty good morning all around, before his man announced that his car was at the door. "'Remember, Mabe, you are to bring the girls down to my office after Thanksgiving services this morning,' he called back as he paused on the threshold of the dining-room. "'I'll remember, General,' called Mabel with a military salute. "'Oh, are we going to church this morning?' asked Elfreda quickly. "'Yes, there's to be a short but beautiful service in the church Father and I attend. You'll hear some wonderful music, too.' "'We went to church here in New York on Thanksgiving Day three years ago,' said Grace. "'Anne, Miriam, and I were visiting the Southards. We went to a church whose minister had at one time been an actor.' "'Oh, yes, I know that church, and I have met the minister.' I interviewed him last fall, and then wrote a story about him for the paper. He's a fine man. I wish I knew Everett Southard and his sister. You shall know them as soon as they return from England, promised Anne. I'm sure they'll be pleased to know you. I hope so, returned Mabel. It was a great honour for Mr. Southard to have such a flattering offer from that great English manager, wasn't it? Did you know that Anne could have gone with them if she had been willing to put off her graduation for another year? asked Miriam. I didn't know it, but I'm not surprised, responded Mabel. Neither fame nor honour would tempt you to allow your chance to finish the race without you. Isn't that true, Anne? True as it can be, affirmed Anne. I owe my greatest happiness to them. I couldn't desert them if I were asked to star in the whole Shakespearean repertoire. Her brown eyes looked tender loyalty at her three friends as she made this assertion. "'We couldn't get along without Anne,' declared Miriam. "'She is our balance wheel. She doesn't say much, but whatever she says counts.' "'How ridiculous!' scoffed Anne. "'These self-reliant persons don't need a balance wheel, Mabel.' "'Some of us do,' observed Grace, an expression of pain in her fine eyes. "'You don't.' contradicted Elfreda pointedly. Mabel eyed the two girls reflectively. "'I'm a mind-reader,' she announced. "'I understand both of you. After church this morning, I'm going to call a general welfare meeting in the library. Our universe needs regulating.' She smiled gaily upon her guests, yet there was a hint of purpose in her tone as she added, "'At least we can exchange valuable information and get down to cause and effect. After breakfast, a great scurrying to get ready for church ensued, and an hour later their big faithful motor carried them off to the Thanksgiving service. "'It doesn't seem a bit like Thanksgiving,' commented Miriam as they sped down Riverside Drive. 
"'More like Indian summer,' observed Patience. The day was glorious with sunshine. There was hardly a suspicion of frost in the air, and the snowy setting considered so essential to a successful Thanksgiving day was entirely absent. "'We never have this kind of Thanksgiving weather in Oakdale, do we, Grace?' asked Miriam. "'Neither do we in Fairview,' put in Elfreda. "'I can recall only one Thanksgiving that wasn't snowy, and I can remember that because I behaved so outrageously.' I was a young barbarian of eight who screamed and kicked my way to whatever I wanted. Two days before Thanksgiving, Pa brought me home a sled. It was red with a white deer painted on it, and underneath the deer was the word Fleet, printed in big white letters. I knew with such a name it could hardly help being the best sled in Fairview. The night before Thanksgiving the rain came down in torrents, and the next morning there wasn't a square inch of snow for miles around on which to try out my beloved sled. It was a bitter morning for me, and I proceeded to wreak my displeasure upon my family. I behaved like a savage all day, and ended by being locked in Ma's room with my Thanksgiving dinner on a tray, minus dessert. I got even that night, for Ma had invited our minister and his wife to dinner. I waited until I had had my dinner, and they had finished too, and were sitting in the parlour. Then I began screaming down a register, which was right over them, my very candid opinion of them, and of Thanksgiving Day in general. It was funny, wasn't it? she chuckled in answer to the burst of laughter that greeted her recital. But it was dreadful for poor Ma. The minister's wife never forgave me for it. She always refers to me behind my back as that terrible Briggs child. Another reminiscence for the adventures of Elfreda, said Miriam. Elfreda is going to write a book of her early adventures and misadventures, explained Grace to Patience. Did we ever tell you about it? No, but in the event of its publication, I speak now for an autographed copy, returned Patience with twinkling eyes. I'll have one done up for you in crushed Levant was Elfreda's prompt offer. "'This is our church,' proclaimed Mabel. The car found a place for itself in the long line of automobiles drawn up at the curb and alighting from it. The party made their way sedately up the broad stone walk to the main entrance of the stately grey stone edifice. During the beautiful Thanksgiving service, Grace's thoughts would drift into the same painful channel that she had inwardly vowed to avoid. The sweetness of the music made her think of home, and the earnest words of the minister sank deep into her heart. She, who had so much to thank her father and mother for, had carelessly allowed the name of Harlow to be dragged into the limelight of the police court news. She was unworthy of her parents' confidence. That she was unjustly severe in her self-arrangement did not occur to Grace. It was her first experience with real remorse, and, as it usually the case, she did not allow herself the luxury of extenuating circumstances. When she bowed her head during the concluding prayer, her eyes were full of tears, and it was only by desperate effort that she managed to wink them back. "'Father wants to see us now, you know,' Mabel reminded her guests as they took their places once more in the automobile. "'To Father's office,' she directed the chauffeur, and the car, with its freight of happy girls, glided down the avenue toward the section of the city in which Mr. Ashe's office was situated. "'Of course father's employees don't work today,' explained Mabel as they rolled along. 
His private secretary is with him, but his offices are closed. He wishes us to take luncheon with him, then we are to go for a drive through Central Park. You have taken that drive before, I suppose, but it's such a beautiful day, and all New York will be in evidence. I thought you would enjoy seeing the world and his wife out for a holiday. We have hardly seen enough of Central Park to grow tired of it, smiled Grace. Anne is a seasoned New Yorker, and so is Elfreda, but Miriam and I never stayed here for any length of time. Patience will have to answer for herself. My knowledge of the metropolis is vague, and my experience here has consisted largely in being rushed from the depot to the hotel and from the hotel to the depot. So you can readily see that Central Park is in the nature of an innovation to me, responded Patience. Luncheon was eaten in a restaurant whose extreme exclusiveness made it an especially desirable place for Mr. Ashe to entertain his daughter and her guests. The drive through Central Park came next, and it was after four o'clock before they turned into Riverside Drive for home. "'Please come down to the library as soon as you take off your wraps,' directed Mabel. "'The time for the council has arrived.' "'Only campfire girls have councils,' retorted Miriam. "'What do you know about campfire girls?' demanded Mabel. "'A whole lot,' put in Grace. We met five girls last summer who had just been on a trip through the White Mountains. They called themselves the Meadowbrook Girls, but they were real campfire girls. They had spent a summer in camp and had won whole strings of beads for their achievements. They spent a day or two in Oakdale, explained Miriam. One of them, a funny little girl who lisped, was a cousin of Hippie Wingate. Her name was Grace Thompson, but her three chums called her Tommy. She had a guardian with them, too and Miss Elting. I like the tall one Miss Burrell best, continued Grace, but they were all interesting. The girl who owned the car was Miss McCarthy, a true Irish Colleen and awfully witty. She and Nora O'Malley swore friendship on sight. Then there was a stout girl whose nickname was Buster, and a quiet brown-eyed girl named Hazel Holland. They write to me occasionally, and they are all going to Overton when they have finished high school. Why did they call themselves the Meadowbrook Girls? Oh, that was the name of their hometown. What good times they must have had, commented Mabel. They did, and all sorts of hairbreadth escapes as well. They won ever so many honor beads for bravery and prompt action in time of danger. But to return to the subject of our council, don't you think we'd better put our wraps away and convene? That's what councils do, isn't it? Convene is correct. Elfreda assured her gravely. Allow me to head the procession upstairs. The sooner we go up, the sooner we shall come down. A little later, they clustered about the cheerful open fireplace in the library. Mabel, who was seated on a stool at one side of the fire, reached forward for the poker and prodded the half-burnt log energetically. The others watched her in silence until she laid down the poker with a suddenness that caused them all to start and turning about said almost brusquely, I wish you girls to tell me frankly everything about Kathleen West. Until that Larry the Locksmith story came out, I hadn't the slightest idea that there was anything save the pleasantest relations between her and Grace. That story set me to thinking. I knew something was wrong, for Grace had told me the Oakdale part of it in strict confidence. When I received a cold little note from Miss West declining my invitation, I was sure of it. Whatever it is, I feel responsible, for I asked you to look out for Miss West in the first place. 
Won't you please tell me all about it? Mabel's frank appeal was irresistible. I'm sure it would be better to tell Mabel everything from the beginning, said Anne in a decided tone. I agree with Anne, came from Miriam. Of course she ought to know it, declared Elfreda. Didn't I say so last year? Last year? exclaimed Mabel. How long has this unpleasant state of affairs been going on? Ever since the early part of our junior year, admitted Grace. I disliked to write you of it. We thought she would change. We did everything we could to please her. But she is not in the least like any other girl I have ever known. Ask Patience about her. She rooms with Miss West. Do you? Mabel turned her amazed glance upon Patience. And not one of you said a word to me of it. We thought it better not to mention Miss West, Grace said slowly. You can readily understand our attitude, Mabel. I feel as though I ought to tell you that she came to New York on the same train with us. She was in the car ahead of ours. Then I shall surely see her before she goes back to Overton. I suppose she came down purposely to be patted on the back for her big story. Now begins a terrible tale of how it all happened. Grace began with their meeting of Kathleen West at the Overton station and of their ready acceptance of the newspaper girl for Mabel's sake. When she told of Kathleen's sudden avoidance of her and the other members of the Semper Fidelis Club, and of her subsequent intimacy with Alberta Wicks and Mary Hampton, Mabel exclaimed impatiently, Those girls again! They were born troublemakers, weren't they? Oh, but they turned out beautifully, defended Grace. Only I haven't reached that part of my story yet. It is really a very nice part. Only so many disagreeable things happened before it. I shall never notice Kathleen West again, was Mabel's indignant cry when Grace had finished the account of Kathleen's attempt to spoil Arlene's unselfish Christmas plan. You mustn't say that. Grace grew very earnest. That was just the reason I didn't wish you to know. I can't bear to be a tale-bearer, but still I believe it is your right to know the facts. You are one of us, and we have no secrets from one another. Yet I don't like to say anything that will lower her in your estimation. She may have been a true friend to you. Don't worry about that part of it, Grace. You aren't a tale-bearer. Mabel reached forward to pat Grace's hand. If only you had told me long ago. Grace continued her narrative, ending with Kathleen's final attempt to be revenged on the Semper Fidelis Club and the clever way in which she had been brought to book by none other than Alberta Wicks and Mary Hampton. "'What a little villain she is, and how splendidly Alberta and Mary turned out,' interposed Mabel. "'She was far too clever to give me the faintest inkling of the truth. I used to wonder why she was always so non-committal about things at Overton.' I laid it to her peculiar temperament, never suspecting that she had good reason for refusing to discuss her college life. I had an idea her cleverness would pave the way to great things for her at Overton. I supposed her to be very popular. Wait until I finish my discourse, smiled Grace. Then you shall hear what patience the all-wise thinks of her. She went over rather hurriedly her recognition of Larry the locksmith in the streets of Overton, of how she had trailed him within sight of his hiding-place, and of her tardy remembrance of her promise to her father. "'I was uncertain what to do when I happened to catch sight of Miss West,' continued Grace. 
An evil genius must have prompted me to take her into my confidence. But it was a good story, and Patience had told me only a day or two before that Miss West had been mourning over her lack of news for her paper. She made what I believed to be a promise to leave out the Oakdale part of the story and not to use my name with it. Not a line of the Oakdale part of the story appeared in the Overton papers. The chief of police kept his word at any rate. I never dreamed of her treachery until I received your letter and the clipping. I know father and mother have read it. Father always buys that paper. I haven't heard a word from home since then. Grace's voice faltered. You poor dear child, cried Mabel, springing from her stall and going over to Grace. Don't sympathize with me, Mabel, or I shall cry. Grace raised her head smilingly, but her grey eyes were full of tears. I've vowed eternal vengeance, proclaimed Elfreda savagely. She could not endure the thought that Grace should be made so unhappy. Tis my own fault. Grace had regained her composure. Perhaps some day I'll learn not to dive into things head first. I'm sure I have displeased and hurt father, or he would have written me before this. I think Miss West has behaved abominably, and I hope you will forgive me for having asked you to help her. If she is still in the office on Saturday, I shall not hesitate to take her to task for her double dealing. I am quite frank in saying you may tell her whatever you choose. Grace's voice sounded very hard. Grace Harlowe, what has come over you? exclaimed Elfreda. You usually preach moderation, but now you are as vindictive and resentful as an Indian. Not quite, retorted Grace, half smiling. I am merely what one might term deeply incensed. It isn't a dangerous state, but it usually lasts a long time. Now I've said the very last word of my say. Tis your time to talk, Patience. I haven't much to say, began Patience, except that Miss West is naturally rather hard and self-centred, and her work as a reporter has accentuated it. Her ambition blinds her sense of honour. I suppose she has one, although I have occasionally doubted it. Don't you approve of newspaper work for women? asked Mabel quickly. I ought to. The words slipped out unawares. That is, I, I know why, cried Elfreda, wagging her head in triumph. Because she is an editor's daughter and knows that a newspaper could not run successfully without women. James Merton Elliot, the well-known newspaper editor, is her father. Exclamations of surprise greeted this announcement. To Miriam, Anne, and Mabel this was news indeed, but the astonishment of Patience arose from a far different cause. "'How did you know it?' Patience asked Elfreda in open amazement. "'Oh, I heard you explaining to Grace at luncheon one day just how the Sunday section of a newspaper was put together. I could see you knew what you were talking about, and made up my mind that you didn't get your information from Miss West.' Then you dropped a letter one day when we were crossing the campus, addressed to James Merton Elliot, the Elms, South Framingham, Massachusetts. I picked it up and handed it to you, but I couldn't help seeing the address. I didn't think anything of it until I happened to read an article in the magazine on noted men of affairs, and found the same name staring me in the face. For a long time I couldn't think of why that particular name seemed familiar. Then I remembered. Still... I had never heard you say a word about your father's business. One night I asked you about him, and you didn't give me any satisfaction. 
I could see you didn't want to answer, so I didn't say another word. But I kept on wondering. What are you all laughing at? she demanded, darting a suspicious glance around the circle of smiling faces. Elfrida, you are a wonder. I make my bow to you. Patience rose, and walking over to where Elfrida sat, bowed low before her. Elfrida's plump hand was raised in protest, but there was a curiosity written on every feature. What made you keep it a secret? I have designs on an editorial position on the College Heralds next year, but I want to win my literary spurs through my own efforts. I don't believe in reflected glory. Patience's earnestness was convincing. Neither do I, agreed Mabel heartily. You won't object if the editor of our paper knows, though, will you? He's an old friend of father's. I'm sure he'll never forgive me if I don't introduce you to him. I'm going to take you girls to the office with me on Saturday. But to go back to the object of our council, what are we to do in the case of Miss West? Nothing. Grace spoke decisively. Oh, yes, we must do something, Grace, dear, admonished Patience. We mustn't give her up in this fashion. Then suggest something, retorted Grace with an impatient frown. I will before long, promised Patience. I can't think of a single thing now, but the inspiration will come. Will you all agree to help if I think of something startling worth while? I'll consider the matter, was Mabel's dry comment. The other girls answered in the affirmative, but without enthusiasm. Grace's almost hostile attitude toward Kathleen had had a potent effect upon them. Patience, feeling their acquiescence to be perfunctory, said no more on the subject. There was a perceptible lull in the conversation. Then Mabel proposed that Miriam play for them, and the council broke up with alacrity and strolled off to the music room. "'It's time to dress for dinner. Father will be here soon,' announced Mabel. "'Tonight we are to have a little dance. I've been keeping it as a surprise for you. We have a perfectly darling ballroom in the house, and I have invited a number of my friends to meet you.' Mabel's announcement was received with exclamations of delight. What girl does not welcome the very idea of a real dance to the notes of a real orchestra? The Overton girls went upstairs to dress for the coming dance, and for the time being their self-imposed problem of the newspaper girl was forgotten. End of chapter 15